Hi, everyone, and welcome to the uh, Journal of the History of Ideas podcast, the second of uh, a hopefully ongoing series. I'm your host this week, John Handel. I'm a PhD student at the University of California, Berkeley, where I work on uh, the history of the financial system in 19th century Britain. Um, and we're very lucky today to have three terrific guests who have all published recent books in the history of quantification, which is going to be our topic today. Um, so first we have Dan Bauck, who's an associate professor at Colgate University, received his PhD uh, from Princeton, uh, and he recently published How Our Days Became Numbered, Risk and the Rise of the Statistical Individual from University of Chicago Press in 2015. Hi, Dan. Hello. Um, second, we have Jamie Petruska. She's an assistant professor at Rutgers University. She received her PhD uh, in history and STS from uh, MIT, and she recently published Looking Forward, Prediction and Uncertainty in Modern America, also from the University of Chicago Press. Hi, Jamie. Hello. And last but not least, we have uh, Will Derringer. He rec also received his PhD in the history and history of science from Princeton, uh, and is currently an assistant professor at MIT, but is uh, right now on fellowship at Princeton again. Uh, and he recently published just this month, this year, uh, calculated, yes, about a, a month now. Yeah. calculated Values, Finance, Politics, and the Quantitative Age from Harvard University Press. So congrats on the, the recent publication, and welcome to uh, the Journal of the History of Ideas podcast. Thanks, John. So the first question I wanted to pose to all of you to sort of kick this off, um, all of your books really interrogate the use and understanding of numbers in history. Um, and there's been sort of a, there's a longer historiography to this, which we'll talk about. It goes back well into the 1980s and 90s. But as your sort of three recent books, uh, to say nothing of a, a host of other books, are engaging with this again, I think it's worth sort of questioning the current sort of political implications of this type of work. So the, the immediate question that I want to ask you all is, why is it important to study the history of numbers right now? Um, and what led you to sort of conceive your project uh, in terms of present debates and how, how you think um, your work might sort of intersect with, with current debates around information and numbers and quantification? Um, so why don't, we just, uh, why don't we just go around in the how I introduced you. So why don't we start with Dan, and then we can move to, to Jamie, and then, and then Will. All right. Yeah, so, you know, I was thinking that one of the reasons that there is scholarship, there's a bunch of scholarship, people like us are happen to be putting out a series of studies that are in some ways similar. You might say that there are histories of numbers, or with these books, I guess we can also say that there are interesting ways, histories of uh, prediction, of risk, of ways of contemplating the future. And I kind of, I was, when I was preparing for this, I was, um, I came on this bit in Jamie's book, uh, in the introduction, where she writes about uh, the idea that her book is saying that uh, the organizational stability of knowledge infrastructures and the epistemological instability that emerged from new ideas about predictability and uncertainty came together. That essentially hers is a study of these new infrastructures and with them these new instabilities. And at some level, that, that strikes me as, as a, a good connection for all three of our books. Um, and where we're coming from is I can't help but think that 
if we weren't living in an era of rapid financialization, we wouldn't all three have written these books. Uh, and it wasn't that I set about thinking. I didn't know that I was living in an era of rapid financialization when I started writing this book. Um, but I think that that's an important reason why, in the end, I landed on life insurance companies as somebody worth something worth thinking about. Uh, is that from the air, from reading the news, it became clear to me that financial institutions mattered and that they had a certain set of logics that were really important in the life around us. And I wanted to know more about them. Great. Well, that segues actually very well into then Jamie's book, especially since you took a lot of inspiration from, from hers. Sure, thanks. Thanks so much, Dan. Um, and John, thanks for inviting me to, to join the podcast. And Dan, it's also nice to collaborate with you again. Um, you know, why is this important? Now, I think right now we're in this very interesting moment in the history of calculating the future. And on the one hand, um, as Dan said, I think we're more reliant than ever before on these routinized quantitative forecasts, thanks to digital computing and, and big data and what is known as predictive analytics in the business world. And these kinds of forecasts are routinized and they're mundane and, and they're part of these predictive knowledge infrastructures of everyday life. And I think on the other hand, there is also right now a renewed acknowledgement that calculating the future does not always work. And Brexit and the US presidential election in 2016 are two recent and very visible reminders that just because you have an abundance of data and expertise and algorithms, um, you can still fail uh, to correctly predict the future. And so in the wake of these two events that seemed in many ways to defy predictive judgment, I'm starting to hear more voices in public discourse that are critical or at least skeptical of forecasting itself and the trust we place in it. So I think in our present moment, uh, once again, people are grappling with this tension between oh, the future with certainty, but also the limitations of probabilistic forecasts and our, our predictive judgment. And so, you know, I think histories of quantification broadly um, that reveal quantification as a contested and socially contingent practice, you know, histories of how and why we came to trust in numbers can perhaps inspire people today to think critically and also ethically uh, about our current algorithmic age, as some scholars are starting to do in, in I think, really exciting ways. So so what you're saying is that the, uh, the Clinton campaign probably should have read your book, right? Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> sort of ironically, um, my predictive judgment uh, failed as well um, in November 2016. I had already submitted my book manuscript um, with a sort of throwaway line about anticipatory anxiety in 538, and then had to take the manuscript back and rewrite the epilogue, you know, to reflect um, the surprise results of the election. It's probably a truism to say that our, our histories are always political, but that's a pretty striking, you know, uh, I think, example, right, of how it's always sort of intertwined with, with writing into a present moment. Um, Will, uh, you actually have, your book is, of these three, yours is sort of the outlier. Um, Yours covers roughly 1688 uh, to 1720 in Britain, whereas um, both Jamie and Dan's book um, covers late 19th and early 20th century America. So I'm wondering, do you have a, do you sort of agree with their their particular concerns over our current quanti quantitative age, or do you come at that from a sort of different angle, just because of the the nature of the time period of your work? So broadly, yes, I, I think the the place where I definitely agree. Um, it is the assessment that the current moment is 
one that features both heightened uh, reliance and confidence and optimism in certain kinds of calculative practices, um, certain kinds of you know algorithmic infrastructures, um, on the one hand, and at the same time, a more visible kinds of anxieties and skepticism about quantification generally. Um, so I think you know one thing. My on is uh, looks at a slightly different um, kind of dimension, more towards the the political. But one thing that really that I have been you know thinking about pretty acutely over the past couple of years um, is this sort of notion um, that at the same time that we are living in this kind of moment of sort of big data optimism, uh, it's also a moment you know of so-called post-truth politics, right? This sort of anxiety that that the sort of standard um, epistemologies, um, the sort of standard um, agreed upon bedrock of you know statistical knowledge that was sort of seemingly could be taken for granted in, in a variety of um, political and public discussions, that that is somehow now um, you know subject to new kinds of, of skepticism. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I think that those are you know things that have come up you know perhaps most acutely um, you know in the you know, around the, the Trump presidency, but I think there's been a lot of kind of public events that have actually foregrounded the, the instability of a lot of um, quantitative knowledge in political life. I mean, if you look now at the, the debates over the, the Brexit indemnity, sort of how much ought to, um, how much the UK ought to kind of pay um, for the divorce bill, um, debates over, uh, for example, when the, the Greek uh, debt crisis, there were these really amazing debates, you know, about exactly how big the Greek debt was that, you know, that ranged, you know, from, you know, 10 times in either direction. These kinds of moments of, of where the, the sort of assumption that, you know, statistical and, and quantitative knowledge was somehow more solid or less political than other forms of knowledge have, have started to, to rupture in some of these really uh, visible ways. And, and you know, the, there's been, um, you know, writing in the popular press, like Jill Lepore and William Davies, and, you know, have, have pointed to this as, a, as this kind of moment where these traditional forms of, uh, where quantitative knowledge is, is somehow, um, you know, almost under assault in certain ways. Hmm. Um, and there's polling to back this up too. I mean, you know, about you know the degree to which you know members of the public believe statistics about things like um, unemployment rates and, and immigration levels and, and things like that. And so, I mean, for my and maybe this can kind of segue a little bit into the uh, sort of historiographical uh, discussion. But one thing that you know I've been wrestling with for a while is sort of a sense that the, this kind of foundational scholarly literature in the social studies of quantification. Um, you know, much of it written sort of in the, in the 80s and 90s, um, I think is in some ways Ill, has not prepared us to understand the, the, that kind of, um, in some ways, the instability, uh, the visible instability of, of quantitative knowledge. I think a lot of, um, a lot of the scholarship on, foundational scholarship on sort of why we, we trust in numbers is, was sort of written from a position um, of numbers being sort of very powerful and very secure in their sort of place 
um, in kind of uh, public uh, epistemologies. Um, you know, so it was a lot of that stuff is critiquing the notion that numbers are, are objective, or you know, critiquing the point that numbers are too powerful um, in our lives. But they don't really attend to the fact um, that you know, well, what happens if if people stop trusting numbers, or what happens if you know numbers sort of prove themselves to be less you know secure than than we assume them to be. And so for me, that was that was it was particularly you know as I was sort of finishing my book, a really kind of um, sort of generative uh, question to see you know in some ways can we look retell histories of, of quantitative knowledge that um, sort of attend to the the kind of instability as a sort of known uh, fact um, all the way all the way along. Yeah, I think that's is- totally right uh, about the '80s and '90s scholarship. Dan, were you trying to get in there? Yeah, well, because I hear Will saying that we are witnessing an assault on quantification. And I, I see entirely where he's coming from. I think something like that is happening. But some of these, a lot of the examples that we're looking at, they strike me as more what we're often seeing is an assault on uh, expertise or on uh, a set of institutions in... Uh, universities, institutions that are affiliated with administrative uh, bits of uh, national governments or international operations. And it's, it's hard for me not to think that what we're seeing is something much more similar to what, what Will wrote about in the 17th century, that like, what we're really seeing is uh, politics by other means. And it's not really so much often an attack on quantification as it's an attack on those institutions and the people in them. And, and I guess I'm, I'm also struck, I'm, I'm curious to hear what Jamie will say, because it seems like Jamie's story is one in which the trust in numbers never had to come at the expense of other forms of prediction or reasoning or other logics and that like that I don't know I'm, I'm curious to hear what Jamie's take yeah and I um I think you're both really right to especially to point to the ways in which you know in our current moment just the the notion that numbers themselves the, the, the sort of empiricism um or sensible objectivity of, of numbers is sometimes stripped away in these kinds of you know, what Will described as an assault uh, against quantitative knowledge. And, you know, it, so too is there right now, I think, an assault on the institutional context that produce those statistics. And so I think earlier historical moments, the, the period I write about in the late 19th and early 20th century, the, the sort of production of forecast as, as quantitative judgments about the future was really, you couldn't really disentangle that from the expanded administrative capacity and authority of the American state. And so I think this is also, too, um, a critique not just of, you know, quantification and a kind of post-truth uh, political moment, uh, but also an assault on on institutions as themselves um, centers of, of knowledge production. Um, and so um, I, I think questions about authority and professionalization are also, you know, part of this um, this, this current moment. Yeah, some, this is Dan again. Some part of me tends to think that uh, the Ted Porter had too good a title 
uh, and and therefore trust numbers is meant to carry too much weight. That that what that book does so well is explain, like on the one hand, why universities uh, and particularly economics departments seem to trust too much in uh, quantitative methods for trying to explain and think about political economy, and on the other hand, to explain the rise of mechanical decision criteria, particularly within. Yeah, administrations that faced uh, certain kinds of democratic uh, concern, right? Uh, it, it doesn't strike me that what Ted was doing was trying to assert that we as a culture or everyone came to trust in numbers, but rather like those two very particular things. Uh, and it does seem like those two particular things, uh, I mean, especially that first one, that the university is now a site of real contest and someone like Ted's book, in fact, was part of that. I mean, maybe, I don't know if Will would say this, but it seems like that was part of that critique, or uh, if not an assault on quantitative reasoning, at least one trying to put it in its proper place. And now we're seeing from a very different direction uh, a similar sort of uh, set of uh, people questioning quantitative reasoning, but also in the university. But that still leaves like a whole lot of space, a lot of institutional space, a lot of social and cultural space that where I don't know that numbers were necessarily always believed or widely trusted. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that you know, is, is where my study differs a, a little bit from um, both Jamie and Dan's and also from uh, Ted Porter's um, great book, Trust in Numbers, um, comes in, in the, as a function of, of looking at a different time period um, you know the the role of of the state and administration and institutions um, in my story is naturally very um, different. So it, it turns out that my book ends up wrestling with a kind of culture in which numbers play a, a large role in public politics, um, but which is not necessarily, um, but not yet necessarily the same role in the kind of state administration. Um, and so I think that, you know, as you said, the, the, in part because I think our, our sort of foundational scholarship on quantification is grounded so much in essentially stories that come out of the 19th century. Um, a lot of what we sort of understand about the, the public and, and um, political functioning of, of quantitative knowledge is is sort of tied up with our understanding of the history of sort of an administrative state of a certain kind of um, set of institutional apparatus, a certain, um, you know, kind of, for lack of a better term, sort of modern, um, you know, set of, of structures of, of power. And I think what what that sort of has done is that is actually, um, you know, I think that, that all along throughout the, that history kind of the way in which numbers get invoked and critiqued, you know, in various different um, sorts of public fora, um, you know, has actually worked, functioned in a lot of different kinds of ways that have gotten somewhat hidden by this kind of, um, you know, state administrative sort of story. Um, and so that, I think one of the things you can learn by looking back sort of even before that, you know, back to the 17th and 18th century, um, is that you can see that the, the sort of, you know, way in which people engage with numbers and, 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 and you know, invoke them to make certain kinds of political arguments um, has actually been 
much more varied, much um, less routinized, um, which is a, a kind of a key word, less sort of um, rational, rationalized in a sort of Weberian sense. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a really interesting, um, I think it's interesting to think about how kind of, um, you know, the 19th century experience, um, and particularly as told by, um, by Porter and, and Ian Hacking and others has kind of, um, you know, really set a particular kind of vision of, of number sort of, um, you know, that, that as Dan points out, doesn't necessarily apply quite as widely, um, you know, as we may assume. Well, so those are great points, and it actually gets to a lot of the things I've been thinking about. Uh, just the other day, I was tasked with narrating the history of quantification from the late 17th century through the early 20th century, and I found myself narrating a history of the, the growth uh, and extension of the state, whether it's through uh, double-entry account books, uh, excise tax collectors, uh, the increasing use of statistics to, to manage uh, the state, whether it's uh, in a sort of biopolitical way or in an uh, uh, economical way. Um, and what I really loved about all three of your books is that they, they begin to get us outside of this state-centered narrative of the history of quanti quantification um, and the history of statistics that I think you're entirely correct to point as being a sort of product of this moment in the 1980s and 1990s where the, the foundational studies uh, not only are thinking about uh, the sort of culture of numbers, um, but are, are deeply engaged with sort of critiques of the limitations of, uh, of the state, in particular the liberal state. Um, so not only Ted Porter, but I also think I sort of lumped James Scott into this, um, among others. Uh, so I, I'd be interested to hear more from each of you um, about the different ways you sort of get outside of the state in thinking about the role of numbers in, in everyday life uh, and in culture in, in each of your books, because um, you each do it in distinctly different ways. Uh, why, don't we, why don't we start with Will, since, uh, again, you're sort of the, the earliest person and the outlier. And you, in, you deal with the state, but you deal with it. The state is a very different beast in the 1720s you know, than it is in the, the 19th century. So why don't we start with you and move, move up to, through Jamie and then Dan. Yeah, so I mean, this is, you know, really something that from the very beginning when I started um, wrestling with this project, something that's been kind of, you know, at the forefront of my, um, my mind, which is, uh, you know, in, in the kinds of sources that I, I look at in the, uh, you know, in the, the 17th and, and late 17th and 18th centuries, um, the real energy when it came to using numbers and, and calculation as a sort of mode of political thinking um, didn't seem to be coming from a, a sort of, from within the, the kind of center of uh, the British state. Um, and it wasn't really, it, it didn't really seem to resemble anything like the kinds of, um, you know, forms of, of governmentality that you would um, you know, here described by, by Latour or, or James Scott or, or others. Um, and in fact, a lot of, you know, the, the fundamental thing that I noticed, and, and this was really, if there's one core idea in my entire book, it's, it's that, um, you know, in the period that I studied, the, the primary function of uh, calculation as a, as a mode of political thinking was as a way to critique the state. 
right? It's kind of a, a weird sort of back. It, it felt almost sort of backwards to me, um, which was that the people who were most interested in getting numbers about things like the size of the national debt or tax revenues or um, you know even population were often people who wanted that information because they were suspicious of state actors and they wanted to call people they wanted to call the powerful uh, to account so this was often along partisan lines it was you know Whigs critiquing Tories or Tories critiquing Whigs or it was sort of relative outsiders critiquing relative insiders um, but that that there was this sort of en real profound energy that was coming from, um, you know, from outside the state. It was manifesting itself in sort of public politics and, and, um, and the pamphlet and newspaper press, um, much more so than it was within um, a kind of proto-bureaucracy. Um, and that just really, you know, really jumped out at me. Um, and it, it made me sort of think about, you know, in different ways about, um, the kind of long history of, of quantification. I mean, it, it, the, you know, in some ways, the, as you say, the, the sort of default narrative about, about the rise of quantification politics um, is about, uh, you know, is about state power. It's about um, states recognizing that they need to be able to count people and, and resources and, and money and, and to discipline um, functionaries um, in order to better, you know, govern territories. Um, and that, and I, I sort of really kind of stumbled upon what seemed to be a very, very different logic of, um, of sort of why calculation would, would prove itself to be a useful mode of political reasoning. And it really was about um, critique. And I, I think there's a this sort of political, um, this sort of intel, uh, kind of history of political ideas sort of genesis of this comes out of a much more uh, sort of Republican tradition um, of a sort of deep suspicion, sort of classical Republican tradition, um, you know, of a deep uh, kind of concern with virtue as being sort of central to um, political stability and a real suspicion of power. Um, and so for me, that actually was, you know, both surprising and um, in some ways heartening in, in the sense that, that so much of the literature on, on quantification um, you know, emphasizes, you know, quantification as a tool of, of surveillance control, um, to see it used so robustly in this particular moment, um, you know, almost as a tool of protest, uh, I, I found to be really, um, you know, really a fascinating uh, story. Yeah, it does. I think your book does a really great job of recovering this sort of other moment of quantification, right, where its politics are still very much up in the air and different than, than what we would associate them now in our sort of, you know, the modern liberal state mode of governmentality that we sort of have lived in for the last 200 years for more or less. Um, and Jamie, uh, in your book, you have a sort of, uh, your book has a very oblique relationship with the state, I think, especially when it comes to the sort of legal regime of um policing uncertainty and predictions. Um, I'm sure you've probably gotten this before, but I thought the sort of the last chapter of your book where you discuss, it's this sort of brilliant move, right, where you've discussed weather forecasting and these sort of more predictable types of prediction in the late 19th century, but then you get to how all these other, how, how these sort of institutionalization of these other types of prediction make um, for really sort of tricky relationship between the state and society with um, things like uh, 
fortune telling and palm reading and these types of prediction that we would consider, you know, very suspect, but they get almost redeemed by by uh, the institutionalization of uncertainty and prediction. Um, and, and the state has a really interesting relationship to that, that certainly, like in Will's case, I think, not totalizing, right? Right. Um, you know, and I think, you know, part of what I tried to do in the book is to recreate this cultural and epistemological world in which there was not really a bright line between agricultural statisticians on the one hand and fortune tellers on the other. And, you know, I think this, you know, our 20th century notions that prophecy and forecasting belong to two different kind of intellectual worlds, you know, there was really no bright line between the two in in the late 19th century. And, you know, the state in the history of, of forecasting, you know, on the one hand, um, I think I do owe a debt to, you know, the kinds of institutional histories and, and even the Jim Scott sort of view of high modernism in which you know, legibility and state authority are, are constituted through these, you know, statistical um, projects. Um, you know, and on the one hand, um, institutions like the United States Weather Bureau or the Division of, of um, uh, Statistics in the U.S. Department of Agriculture, you know, depended on uh, the public circulation of cotton statistics and weather forecasts constituted um, state authority, but then um, thanks to the sort of unruly social lives of, of forecasts uh, and numbers, it also really undermined it, right? So there are all these sort of ironies in which um, expanded administrative capacity and more sort of quantitative legibility in terms of what the weather would be the next day or how many bales of cotton would be um, produced ultimately ends up creating an, in an ironic and unexpected way sort of perceptions of more market volatility, um, a more market instability um, rather than less. And so that's kind of one story about state-sponsored knowledge infrastructures both creating a kind of organizational stability and authority, but then also creating, you know, kind of volatility and uncertainty in the marketplace. Um, the story of the fortune tellers, I think on the face of it might seem to be different from, from those earlier kinds of stories of, in, the, in the sense that it's not as much about bureaucracy. Um, but to also with the story of, of fortune tellers, um, what seemed like on, on the face of it, a, a relatively um, sort of straightforward anti-divination statute um, then ends up being um, a rather uh, elusive and complicated legal concept to ch then try to implement. Um, and so as you have, you know, state um, governments and municipal police forces trying to crack down on fortune tellers in places like Coney Island, right, uh, constituting a kind of... Um, state authority and, and aggressive policing, um, often in the service of, of nativist ideologies and, and white supremacist ideologies. Um, you also have fortune tellers really, in many ways, um, undermining and, and, and finding a way to navigate their way through uh, that kind of policing, really by, you know, reinventing the work that they were doing. And in many cases, making claims for 
fortune telling as a scientific or more ostensibly rational or quantitative or even calculative practice. Um, and stories of fortune tellers like Evangeline Adams, for example, you know, the nation's most famous astrologer in the early uh, 20th century. I mean, she too is, I think, making claims to authority uh, by virtue of her status as a, a businesswoman, right? That she's running really a business of astrology that on the face of it did not look that different um, from other uh, other kinds of, of corporations. Um, so I think there are many wonderful and sort of ironic tensions between this expanded administrative capacity and legibility of the state and then the way in which individuals manage to um, subvert it. Yeah, especially how right these fortune tellers are often attempted to be policed by the state along sort of racial and gendered lines, but then they sort of use the legibility of uncertainty itself as a way to combat that is really excellent, I think. Um, and Dan, to sort of segue into your book, I mean, your, your, your book also talks about the different ways that gender, race, age play into how corporations, especially, and out, again, outside of the state, think about sort of determining and creating these categories of risk, but then how those same categories are at, at times used to sort of contest the power that's exerted uh, exerted over individual people. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm struck listening to those two responses that came before mine. One, even just, Jamie talked about 19th century astrology, but astrology then also showing up as the, the kind of looming threat in Will's story of what these gentlemen might be uh, besmirching themselves as when they enter into these calculative uh, arguments and start making claims against the state. I guess uh, one place I'd like to, to put my book and put me in this conversation is in some ways arguing with Will about whether or not his position is in fact so much of a uh, counter-narrative to what we expect, or rather uh, what it is is it's casting into light the bigger picture that we should have realized was there in the first place. And that made, I think Jamie's book does this too, that what, um, so when I would say, if, if forced, I would say that maybe my book is a history of, a social history of corporate practice. So it's a way of trying to figure out how corporations came to understand individuals uh, through their doctors and their actuaries and a whole bunch of other folks as risks, and then how individuals adopted that set of practices for thinking about risks and, and used it in, in the world around them. And for me, it's really hard to say that it's a story that, separate, that, is, that is not about the state. Uh, in fact, when, it, when, it, when you start following these practices, they, they slip and slide between these apparently separate realms, whether it's the state, whether it's corporations, whether it's the academy. And what's so interesting in these three books is right by what I see happening in Will's book is that the state creates a new set of problems by a new, a new set of places where power is to be found. That's through the joint stock corporation. That's by uh, suddenly massive increases in the amount of debt that the state produces. And what happens is that in those new kind of sets of financial institutions, people start contesting them, and they do it in a, in a language of calculation. Uh, and similarly, this, the story that Jamie was just telling makes, again, this, this sound like there's 
uh, a model of a for- forecasting business that suddenly is a place where people can make money. And not surprisingly, we start to see people fighting and adopting practices. But it's not that mine or these are anti-state stories, but rather that we constantly see how these calculative practices are being adopted and used by people. I mean, maybe just being too straightforward here, but are 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 there power contests to try to gain access to resources, to money, to uh, to status, and that that's often a great example in my book. I guess would be Irving Fisher, who is uh, we know mainly as an economist, but now becoming better known for all of the other things that he was involved in. Uh, and one of the things that he does is he picks up a way of valuing individual lives that was pioneered as a means for selling life insurance to convince people to use the the, kind of the present value of their future income as a means to determine how much life insurance they should have. Uh, uses that technique to help capitalize the lives of all Americans. Uh, and then also adopts the idea of a life table and creates some speculative forecast-driven life tables to show what would happen if the state invested more money in public health. And then by picking up and adopting these two sets of corporate practices, makes an argument for increasing the size of the state, for uh, public health insurance, for a, a national federal department of health, much of this goes nowhere, uh, but in fact, there it's. I think it's a great example of the way in which the Inferred Fisher, the corporation, the academy, and the state are all not at odds, but just part of the same nexus. That I think takes us, if we want to get a little more in depth and technical, with each of your book, with each of your books, I think one of the other really productive tensions that exists in all of the topics that you discuss is. Um, the difference between prediction of the future, whether that's, uh, in Will's case, the future value of stocks, in Jamie's case, weather and crop forecasts, or even marriage, uh, love, uh, inheritance, um, and, and in Dan's case, uh, the liability for, for death most, most prominently. But the difference between predicting the future and trying to make sense of, of past, past events and facts Right, and the different sort of mechanics by which this is done in in by the different actors in each of your books, I think is probably the central sort of analytical framework that that you each approach uh, these problems. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. I know Will in particular. I was struck by, I believe it's uh, Archibald Hutchison in your book, and this sort of creation of a very modern form of predicting stock prices. Uh, back in the 1720s, but you each have this in, in various ways, I think. Yeah, I mean, the, I was definitely starting to think about these three books and, and the way in which the, the future is really central. I mean, it, it, to, to all of them, I mean, J, Jamie's the most, you know, um, kind of Im- immediately, but really, I, I don't think any of these three books could be told without kind of really um, thinking about that. Um, and yeah, I mean, one of the things that that really kind of struck me broadly in, in the story that I um, told is that you know the um, the sort of history of, of kind of um, the, one of the things that that a kind of increasing um, facility and, and uh, kind of confidence in, in calculation um, did over the course of um, 
the period that I study from you know the 1680s uh, through to about the um, 1630s or so, sorry, 1730s, um, is sort of expand the kind of temporal scale upon which uh, political debates were held. Um, so, you know, very broadly in, in my book, that um, much of the early kind of debates in, in British um, politics um, around sort of economic questions um, that were carried out with calculations were about what happened in the past. So there were sort of questions about, you know, how much um, did a certain tax raise, did, how much revenue um, did a certain tax raise, you know, over the past 10 years? What had happened, you know, in the last three years since a certain new administration came in? Um, a lot of debates about, you know, how big is the national debt? How much did it grow over the last five years? These kind of um, deeply sort of empirical kind of uh, backward looking or sort of present uh, questions. And there's a, this interesting kind of shift. It starts to happen, you know, it's happening sort of throughout my period, but around, around 1720 and really in, in evidence very much in the 1720s and particularly through um, the work of one kind of key figure in my book, who's Robert Walpole, who's a, a prime minister at the time, um, that there's this sudden kind of new use of of calculation to make very bold claims about the political future, right? About, um, you know, Robert Walpole likes to make kind of, he essentially has propagandists who are publishing pamphlets that are, that contain calculations that talk about when the national debt will be repaid, repaid off at some point in the future and puts a very specific date on exactly when it's going to get paid off according to some set of policies that, Walpole has instituted, and then actually writing sort of future panegyrics to Robert Walpole, praising him for what he will have done on the basis of these calculated policies. It's this just really fascinating sort of, um, you know, change of tense, right? It's this kind of move into the sort of uh, the future perfect or something, right? That, that all of a sudden, you know, there is this you know, space of arguments about you know, about what kind of will have happened. Um, I just found that really sort of um, remarkable. I think it differs, you know, in some really um, powerful way, powerful and very really interesting ways from the kinds of forward-looking calculation um, that you'd see in Dan and, and Jamie's book. For one thing, it's it's not really probabilistic. So much of what we you know think of when we you know, talk about kind of think about quantification and, and futurity um, is about sort of calculations of, of probability, and that's you know clearly really really um, central. But this you know in the 18th century, there's a kind of different sort of mode. It's also not it's not quite forecasting in the sense that it's it, it's not sort of trying to make claims about what is going to happen. You know, in sort of complex you know, systems that are outside of human control. It's more sort of using calculation to sort of tell kind of narratives about sort of possible human possibility. And so there's some really interesting differences, I think, in, in the ways in which calculation is invoked in, in these different um, studies and, and across these different time periods. Um, but I think, it's, I, I think it's clearly, you know, the cent you know central 
you know, central to all of them. Yeah, and Jamie, it's also basically the, the central problem of your book too, right? Is how to how to predict the future based on the variety of sort of past experiences and, and your the various actors that you deal with in the book come to that come to a, a variety of different answers of how that's best to be done as well. That's that's absolutely right. Um, you know, and in many ways I, I try to tell a story of contests and struggles over the ability to forecast who has the, the the right or the authority to predict the future, but of course, what this is what this really reveals is uh, struggles in the present over how then to produce that knowledge. And as you've pointed out, so much of that hinges on access to historical data about past patterns in rainfall and temperature. You know, historical. Uh, data on cotton yield, on average acreage planted, you know, over a certain period, and of course patterns in prices um, that economic uh, forecasters like Samuel Benner, like Henry Helm Clayton, who was a, a meteorologist who sort of found his way into the world of business forecasting, um, they and so many others were really um, you know, adherence of, of theories of cycles, right, that Jevons and so many others really popularized in the late 19th century. And of course, um, history of, of, of numbers and, and just having historical um, data is, of course, central to any sort of forward-looking um, theory of, of cycles. So just in terms of, of methodology, I think uh, past patterns and historical data are really central um, to this story. But there's also a curious way in which the bureaucracy and record keeping that is required um, to produce that kind of data itself also becomes a site of conflict. And so uh, the United States Weather Bureau, for example, as it was engaging in its war on the long range weather profits, right, it wanted to sort of um, to, to drum out of, of business all of the almanac um, writers and, and those who were issuing seasonal and, and yearly forecasts. And, and they really had the task of trying to teach the public to trust in a government bureaucracy that only offered short-term forecasts, right? And so um, as part of their campaign against uh, well other profits, they, they realized that without an orderly and, and well-kept system of records management in a local weather bureau office, for example, if there were unseasonable weather and a journalist wandered into an office, if, if records were not carefully kept and, and if you know a local official couldn't say with some degree of certainty you know how this particular season or rainfall in the past, then the fear on the part of, of government officials was that, well, then the oldest local inhabitant or the local weather prophet, um, you know, would become uh, would become the authority. So just a very practice of record keeping itself, I think, is essential to this struggle over, um, you know, who has access to to uh, historical data. Um, Another weather prophet I write about, uh, W.T. Foster, engaged in this long and, and sort of bitter battle with officials in the United States Weather Bureau over exactly that, right, over access to uh, complete sets of, of rainfall data that he considered essential to his own system for calculating the future. Um, and, and to that, I would add also, um, in addition to the way that, that the past is very much 
sort of access to knowledge about the past is crucial to making predictions in the present. Um, there's also a way in which predictions of the future can then end up changing the present, right? And so I, I think there's a way in which um, there's a kind of feedback loop that we see, especially in the world of economic forecasting, where um, predictions of the future then end up um, reshaping the conditions of the present. Um, farmers like to say in the 1870s, when they were skeptical of government weather forecasts, that you know your forecast can't change the weather, but you surely could change cotton prices, or you could change, you could move markets up or down, you know, depending on. Uh, what kinds of forecasts you're issuing. And so, you know, Donald McKenzie's uh, famous uh, framing of, of economic modeling as, as an engine, not a camera, Walter Friedman's work on economic forecasting, um, you know, I, I think it's part of a literature that looks at, you know, how predictions of the future then end up reshaping the present. So I would, I would also add that it, I think a history of prediction involves this complicated kind of temporality in which you're fitting not only the past into the present, but then also looking at a feedback loop and thinking about how predictions of the future then reshape the present moment. That's yet another great segue, I think, into to Dan's work. Um, and Dan, I would be remiss as uh, someone who lives in the East Bay to not bring up the Oakland Athletics. Uh, you, you cite, um, so um, we've talked about Ted Porter quite a bit, but you cite, I think, the other sort of major... Uh, major work in the history of quantification in my mind, which is Michael Lewis's Moneyball, uh, actually, I think, discusses many of the same things that you try and get at in your book, which is, uh, you know, with the, the 2002 Oakland A's, Billy Bean uh, and Paul D. Podesta try and evaluate players based on, on pure numbers and statistics and sabermetrics for the first time. But what Lewis chronicles in his book is at the same time, uh, Billy Bean is engaged in this crusade with his players to try and get them to uh, act and behave more like their statistics say they should, right? The emphasis on taking walks, not stealing bases, doing all of these things that they, they've been sort of trained to do as baseball players and act more like statistics. And in many ways, that's sort of uh, exactly what your book is about, too, when it comes to the insurance industry. And it gets to some of Jamie's points about how the ways we understand the past uh, and the future when it comes to quantitative prediction uh, really shape uh, how, how people act and attempt to frame their own present. Yeah, I, uh, I'm not proud of this, but uh, Michael Lewis is one of my uh, absolute favorite beach reads uh, if, where I to go to the beach. Um, I don't actually like the beach very much, but when, I, when I'm just reading for fun, I will read any Michael Lewis book. In fact, I mean, I've read Moneyball more times than I really should be saying online for publication. Uh, the, the in next, part because the next I time find it so of, fascinating. Oh, sorry. The next time you're out of Berkeley, we can um, we can go to his uh, his favorite lunchtime spot, and uh, I'll introduce you. He he lives he lives in my neighborhood. So, anyways, carry on. Oh, all right. Actually, I don't know that I wanted to. Well, actually, I do want to do that. Um, yeah. So. I mean, one of the things that Lewis does so well, just to, and I'll get back to the real thing at hand, uh, but it's just such a, a master narrator. Like, just, and it's the kind of thing that uh, you can see in all of our books, right? It's quite easy for people to hear that you're writing about the history of uh, prediction or the history of quantification, 
uh, and to watch their eyes glaze over and to figure out a way to make that a story that people want to read is uh, is a real narrative challenge that, faces, that the historian and the scholar faces. Uh, he's just so good at it. Um, but no, from Jamie's point, uh, I saw that quite a bit in the work that I was doing with these life insurance companies. Uh, one of the most evident ways to see it would be in the ways that determinations of risk shaped access to life insurance, which uh, today it might be hard to understand this, but life insurance was probably one of the most important means by which many ordinary people had a capacity to invest in over the long term, right? So imagine a, a moment before mutual funds, imagine a moment when even bank access would be fairly limited for many, many individuals. Life insurance contracts were often a crucial way for ordinary working people and for people with a little bit more wealth as well to put away that wealth for a long period of time and actually get quite good returns on that wealth, whether they would get that out when they died or they'd get out through other processes called like dividends or through surrender values of their policies. It was a real means by which wealth could be generated and how intergenerational wealth could be transferred. So that means that uh, the decision to make an individual or a group of individuals poor risks and therefore limit their access to life insurance or to charge them uh, subprime rates, what we call now subprime rates, higher rates for the same amount of insurance, produces a kind of economic inequality. Uh, and in many ways, uh, it seems to me a story like what Jamie was saying, in which uh, the key example uh, in the American case is that of discrimination against African Americans uh, from the late 19th century on, well, I mean, throughout the 19th century, uh, in fact. But there, the, the thing that got me as I continued to look at it was, uh, one, it's really interesting to see politics. After the Civil War, Northern, a series of northern states, uh, fueled undoubtedly by some um, anti-corporate feeling, but then also by powerful African-American communities uh, and politicians, succeeded in passing anti-discrimination laws. And it took me a while to understand what I was reading, uh, and this had been sort of been told by some other people, but I hadn't, it took me a while to figure out that, in fact, the key argument that these uh, anti-discrimination folk were making was that the past couldn't be used. Data from the past was no longer applicable. That the data from the past came from a, a moment in which the slave system made everything else that came before uh, inaccurate. And we're all now so, uh, so well programmed that when we see the advertisement for Vanguard or whatever financial fund that says past performance might not indicate future performance further. And we, we understand that's right. That's the thing you have to say. Uh, but that's the kind of argument that, that made possible these anti-discrimination laws that not just past performance might not indicate, but that in like in Jamie's example, in this case, it would be as if to say all of the past weather records no longer matter. We live in a different kind of world. Uh, and then the the tragic irony, in a sense, is that that same kind of argument is then picked up by uh, this insurance statistician, Frederick Hoffman, who uses it to argue that, well, actually, since the Civil War, you're right, there has been a major 
uh, fundamental shift that means past statistics don't matter, but it's a shift in the other direction. In fact, it argues that African-Americans uh, outside of slavery will uh, become extinct uh, and therefore argues that life insurers have no, uh, should not offer any kind of life insurance to African-Americans, which again, produces the, the kind of effect in terms of inequality that it's also meant to be predicting. Uh, one final thing I'll say is just thinking about Will's example, it strikes me that Walpole is, and there's sort of his propagandists, they're, they're thinking about durability of the state, right? When they write that, part of what they're doing is imagining that the state will exist in something like its current moment, its current manifestation for a long period of time. And that that kind of, so that what they're doing is at this moment, taking advantage of or operating under the, the way of thinking about the future, something which is going to be essentially the same. Uh, and that that's actually quite like what uh, life insurance is premised on as well, is uh, these ideas of how to value a life or the idea of, in fact, insuring oneself is premised on the idea that one's body will, God willing, continue to persist for the next 30 or 40 or 50 years. And there is a probabilistic aspect in terms of figuring out how long that period is that one assumes one's body is going to persist. Uh, but insofar as it, the logic, the interesting logic is one of imagining in the present how to, like, what to do because one assumes that there's going to be this long period of durable existence afterwards. That's a, actually a, a shared logic. Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating point. I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, struck me in, in reading, um, you know, studying the debates of, um, particularly about um, national debt um, in the 18th century, was that you know so much of there's this kind of an assumption, an easy assumption that can be made about um, debt and about about finance in general that it's um, you know debt in the stock market in, in particular that um, it's this kind of radical uh, it's this world that kind of confronts uh, you know that these new sort of financial technologies kind of confront people with new forms of sort of radical. Um, uncertainty and that it's it's dislocating and, and um, uh, kind of alienating in, in, in different ways. One of the things I, I found, which was this other kind of counter movement that is exactly along the lines you're describing, Dan, which is that um, there's a way in which that the effort to try to kind of calculate and, and make sense of what at first might seem like a really unruly and terrifying, potentially apocalyptic thing, like you know the fact that your nation is you know layering on exponential amounts of debt, you know, and you know what could possibly happen, but a kind of catastrophic collective bankruptcy. Um, that you know the the process of actually sort of thinking through the implications of that and trying to project them out and to kind of calculate them forward does create this other kind of um, futurity, which is a sort of new sense of the real stability of the future, right? That in fact, you know, it's possible to think about a future that proceeds, that sort of unfolds um, in a kind of mathematical, orderly fashion. Um, 
and it is you know very much similar i think i think to to the life insurance example um which on the one hand is about um you know the sort of ultimate the, the kind of ultimately sort of dislocating and, and seemingly unpredictable event you know of one's own death um but is also you know a, takes that and turns it you know into this uh, into something that can be kind of normalized um uh, in this really profound way. Um, so I think that's a, a, a fascinating connection. I hadn't, you know, put it exactly um, together, though I, though I should actually say, what, come to think about one of the, there is a, a sort of interesting historical hinge here. One of the figures in my, um, at the, that comes up in the end of my book, um, who uh, Dan will know well, um, there's a figure named Richard Price, um, who is sort of famous on the one hand, he was a kind of a, a uh, 18th century sort of he was a Unitarian philosopher. Um, he was, you know, a mathematician. Uh, he publicized um, Bayes' first papers on on what would come to be known as Bayes' theorem. Um, and he's also often thought of as sort of the founder of actuarial mathematics. Um, and he had this remarkably uh, sort of utopian, almost kind of. Uh, mathematical sort of utopian vision of of using essentially actuarial prediction to stabilize the polity, you know, in a, in a way that basically to, to sort of implement a series of sort of mathematical, um, effectively algorithms for managing the national debt, um, for kind of creating um, sort of stable investment and annuity schemes for uh, widows and for other sort of non-propertied Groups such that they could have stable property and thus be, you know, participants um, in in the polity, um, and so he had a, a way. It, it saw these in some ways as, as quite connected, right? This this sort of project for you know what we now think of as kind of life insurance, and on the other hand, um, for you, you know the kind of creating a, a sort of stable state. Um, so Richard, just to say that Richard Price would very much agree with uh, with your connection. I would just add to this is fascinating, um, and and I think in listening to Dan and Will's comments that it strikes me that we're also talking about two different kinds of temporalities, right? So the the long range temporality of political arithmetic or life insurance, right, is also shaped by more short term futures and uncertainties of economic life, and so to to sort of try to imagine what a culture of prediction looked like in any one of these uh, periods that we write about, it, it strikes me that often it may be that multiple forms of forecasting may be embedded within each other with different temporal frames, right? So for example, you know, short-term weather forecasting or commodity price forecasting, um, on the one hand, a more sort of medium range, um, maybe economic vision or utopian uh, vision, uh, reform-oriented um, vision of the future. And then of course the distant, maybe hazy sort of long range uh, mode of anticipation, uh, you know, it, the end of one's life, and, you know, wherever in the actuarial table uh, that would be, or, you know, Edward Bellamy's year 2000. I mean, so some of these political projects and, and um, sort of intellectual visions of stability in the long-term future also, I think, 
are related to uh, sort of instability in the short term. And so the, the difference between short term and long range temporality, um, I think, has everything to do um, you know, with this particular um, with this particular point. Yeah, I'm, I'm listening to you, Jamie, too. It made me think about how every time we're talking about all the, a lot of these questions of temporality are also often related to or maybe even sometimes proxies for uh, questions about, I don't know, epistemology, about what we, or maybe just data, about what we can know, right? So I'm thinking of your example of cotton forecasting, which is about forecasting, but so much of it really seems to be just about like, who knows the most about this wide field of planting? Like, who actually has enough data to have a sense of like what everybody's doing, what everybody's experiencing? It's kind of about the future, but also, but so much of it is also about just do we have enough people on the ground who can see and observe effectively and tr in a trustworthy manner what is happening? And in the same way, the life insurance story often boils down to: Do we think we can trust that our doctors? Uh, are evaluating all of these risks effectively uh, or that the actuaries really understand all the different uh, sorts of people or whatever that are in their pool of risks. Uh, that so, so, so often the, the question seems like it's about the future, but it's also related to very closely this uncertainty that's built into just whether or not one can know the variety of stuff that one's trying to oversee. Um, yeah, I mean, I was just in... in, in in my book, that, that question, um, you know, about, you know, I thought about this actually in some of the earlier comments um, uh, when we were talking about the, the degree to which these kind of questions about just the sort of basic problem of kind of record keeping, um, information management, um, how a lot of this sort of new kind of epistemological departures um, of, of using calculation to sort of, um, whether it's to, to predict the future, um, to kind of create, sort of analyze um, kind of probabilistic phenomena, um, or in my case, often to sort of analyze um, the kind of um, workings of, of um, a sort of fiscal state. Uh, a lot of them, in so many of these situations, it seems to arise out of kind of the basic problems of how hard it is to know and, and kind of manage, um, you know, information on the ground, right? Like, I, I, that's, a, that's a sort of a securitist and, and, and not very um, coherent comment. But what I meant to say is that one thing that come, sort of comes up in all three books is just how, you know, how hard... Um, kind of the management of information um, is and just how much sort of room there is for kind of political conflict um, just on that, on the, the, the sort of level of, of knowing kind of basic things that you want to know, right? Whether it's sort of how much, you know, cotton has been harvested, you know, or kind of basic demographic and health information about, you know, uh, potential uh, insurance clients. Um, in my case, you know, it's sort of basic. A lot of the, the kind of conflict where my, my story starts is people to trying to figure out basic information about how much uh, revenue the government generates and how much they spend and how much, how it gets spent. Um, 
just sort of, I think all three of these books just sort of highlight you know, how a lot of empirical, seemingly unproblematic empirical numbers are incredibly hard to attain, right? And then a lot of the, the kind of effort that then gets put into sort of um, analyzing and, and, and calculating and, and projecting um, is in many ways an attempt to sort of, uh, you know, overcome those basic problems, you know, just how difficult it is to sort of solve those, sort of, you know, what seem like in a kind of philosophical sense, entirely unproblematic um, empirical facts. So I think this might be a good place to, we're beginning to push up against time, um, but I want to ask one last question um, that I think is really highlighted in the, the previous discussion. Uh, of course, uh, this podcast is being hosted on the Journal of the History of Ideas blog, um, but they've, this, the Journal of the History of Ideas blog, I think, has taken a very sort of ecumenical approach to what they might consider intellectual history since its foundation. Um, and of course, as I read all of your books, I, I wouldn't call them any, any of them intellectual histories. I'd say they're, they're very much cultural histories. And I'm a, a sort of born and bred cultural historian plucked from the, the Berkeley History Department of all places uh, chosen to host this. Um, so I, I wonder, and, and it seems to me that all of you were trained, particularly in the history of science, and you're making, you're writing these books that are making these claims that are not just about numbers, but I think, as, as Dan said at the very beginning of the podcast, are all in ways, too, about the history of, of finance and financialization, um, and that all have a very important stake, too, in, in this sort of new, somewhat amorphous, and probably theor under-theorized field of the history of capitalism. Um, this, is, this is all a roundabout way of asking how each of you sort of thought about your own methodological stakes in doing this project. Um, I think as Will pointed out, there seems to be a sort of impetus towards a, an older trend of cultural history where knowledge systems, systems of meaning, create and shape the social processes that they purport to describe. Um, but you all do that in very different and I think updated ways since the, the earlier turns of cultural history. And so I would just wonder how, um, how each of you have sort of begun to conceive of this because I think we're at a, a moment in the contemporary historiography where it's this sort of reflection is, is important that we think about how we're sort of pitching this uh, since uh, I, I don't want to see, say there's a methodological malaise in history at the moment, but I think that wouldn't be far from the truth. Um, so, Jamie, I, I, why don't you start, because I think as your second project um, actually intersects with a lot of the things Will was talking about. So why don't you start, and then I'd, I'd like to hear, hear more from all of you, too, and just how methodologically you think about positioning yourselves and the work you're doing. Um, thank you, Jeff. That's such a, um, that's such a wonderful question. And, um, you know, I, I think the... the the place where I see my work um, fitting in is, of course, as a cultural history, but intersecting with histories of techno science, of course, uh, the new history of capitalism as well. But really, through all three, what I, I've tried hard to recover from the archives um, is really the epistemologies of the everyday. Um, and so, the historiography, I, I think, has well documented, um, you know, the epistemic shift from positivism to probabilism and the worlds of the intellectual elite, but I've tried to show that it was not just 
philosophers and mathematicians who are grappling with ways of knowing future uncertainties on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I have focused on ordinary people who often did not have professional or academic training in any field related to forecasting, you know, farmers, fortune tellers, shopkeepers, uh, journalists, ordinary people who want to know if it was safe to travel in a heat wave. You know, I, I think of all those people um, as also participating in the epistemological debates of what historians have recognized as the probabilistic revolution. So it may be fair to say that I'm interested in a, a sort of um, uh, everyday and, and uh, intellectual history uh, from the bottom up. Um, the other uh, thing I would note is that uh, I, I've tried not to separate the material and the techno-scientific practices of forecasting from the epistemologies of prediction. And so um, I, I don't see the, the sort of um, history of ideas in this book as separate in any way from the material practices of forecasting. And so methods of forecasting and ideas about predictability ultimately shape each other um, in a mutually constitutive way. And the final thing I should note is just my intellectual debt to the framework of networks and infrastructures that has really emerged from STS and uh, history of technology and really pursuing these uh, metaphors and, and frameworks of circulation and networks of exchange um, in an actor network theory um, kind of way has really allowed me to I think illuminate the social lives of forecasts, which, as you mentioned at the outset, really step outside of you know the state institution as kind of the locus of knowledge production. And so I've, I've tried to um, use those metaphors and frameworks of circulation in really tracing how the meaning and value of forecasts change um, as they circulate uh, through economy and culture. Yeah, if I can, if I can jump in, I, I mean. I... The, the thought I had was, you know, very much along um, the lines there. I and mean, one thing that I, you know, I think it, you know, we haven't maybe said it as explicitly as we, you know, could, but, um, you know, there is a, a huge amount of shared uh, territory in, in the approaches that all three of us have. And I think a lot of that comes from, you know, being trained in the history of science and technology and taking on sort of economic subject matter. And it's not a coincidence that, you know, three of us have, have sort of, um, done that, and I, I think it's kind of it's interesting to think about sort of what um, you know what are some of the trajectories behind behind that move. Um, you know, we've mentioned a, a few of them. Certainly, the kind of broader context of financialization, um, but I think there's a sort of uh, development within kind of history of science and technology and STS um, that have also sort of led us all um, in this direction as well, um, and I think. To, to paint in very broad strokes, I think it would be that, you know, in the, uh, you know, the, the sort of early heyday of kind of STS, of sort of critical history of science, um, you know, in the sort of 80s with, you know, sociology of scientific knowledge and um, uh, Latour and, and uh, actor network theory and, and that sort of period, um, you know, the real kind of target of interest there were the hard sciences. You know, there was a sort of interest in, you know, writing kind of critical um, constructivist accounts um, of what seemed to be the most unassailable, hardest forms of knowledge. So physics, you know, we're talking about, you know, 
Boyle's law and your and um, you know gravitational wave detectors. These like really kind of seemingly you know things that were kind of um, you know at the at the top of the Comtean hierarchy uh, in some way. And I think there has been a, a real interest in, in general as you know as the field of uh, kind of history of science and technology or, or SCS is, I think in, in some ways moved away from that sort of first order kind of, you know, STS as basically critique of scientific knowledge um, towards a more, I would say kind of interest in understanding how kind of knowledge systems are put together, the practices by which they work, um, sort of how they Kind of function in a, in a sort of um, you know s social and jointly social and material fashion, and I think a lot for a lot of scholars, um, including um, you know many of the this sort of foundational scholars working on um, actor network theory, like um, Michelle Colomb, um, Donald McKenzie is another person who's come up. Uh, I think a lot of uh, scholars have realized that actually sort of economic knowledge is one of the most interesting cases in which to study that, right? Because, in part because it is so malleable, um, because there are these sort of fascinating phenomena whereby um, sort of assessments about the future kind of rebound on the present in these interesting ways. And in part because there seems to be, you know, sort of variety of alternatives that could have been played out. Um, so I think that, you know, all of us in some ways are, are engaged in, in some version of that project of really looking at a, at a very, um, you know, kind of uh, this really getting into the kind of um, bones of sort of how um, knowledge systems are constituted. Um, and, you know, as Jamie mentioned, you know, how much um, she's a debt to you know, she feels a sort of debt to actor network theory. I had never sort of thought of myself as a kind of Latourian or as an actor network theory person, um, you know, when I was in graduate school or I was a postdoc. And then I, um, my first year at MIT, I taught the intro to um, uh, STS class um, and I reread Science in Action by Latour. And I was like, I basically believe all of this. Like I had somehow sort of absorbed it. Like, you know, I, I, I was not someone who had, I never cited Latour, like it was not, you know, forefront in my mind, mm -hmm. but it just sort of struck me as almost commonsensical. Um, and I think that there is so much, you know, you know, I think there are a lot of the, the more sort of extreme um, kind of contentious elements of, of some of that theory that are not, you know, necessarily, um, that one doesn't necessarily have to take on board. But the idea that the way you kind of understand um, you know, the functioning of these, of these systems is really to, to get, you know, down into the, the kind of technical heart of, of you know, the, the material and, and social practices through which they are, are built that um, I think is just, is just so tremendously powerful. And so I think, you know, insofar as to the question of sort of methodological malaise, you know, I, I you know, I, I'm sort of all about kind of you know, what I think of as sort of technical history, you know, the history of, of sort of complicated stuff, um, you know, really kind of encouraging 
historians to to look at at really just like hard things, like difficult, hard to understand institutions, complicated practices, um, you know, and, and to to, re to sort of revel in the detail. Um, and there's just so much that can be learned from that. And I think, you know, Dan and, and Jamie's books are, are really wonderful examples of that. And so I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Jamie's commitment to everyday epistemology and uh, thinking that's something I would, I'd like to aspire to, but I don't think I do it nearly so well as Jamie does, in part because uh, I don't quite have so much of the, the variety of everyday folk, like the, the variety of different kinds of people that Jamie's able to bring in to that narrative. Um, but also because I don't think epistemology is the word that I would uh, fasten on to try to describe the work I'm doing. I have much more point this probably isn't actually, this probably still is within the realm of epistemology, but I wouldn't use the phrase. Instead, I would go along the lines of what um, both Jamie and Will have said is pointing to the realm of practice. I think a lot of what all our books are doing is taking from history of science a focus less on thought and more on thinking, uh, and less on um, what set of ideas are around and more on what set of material practices are being mobilized to uh, create a set of, to create the sense that there is something like a stable set of ideas. Uh, and that we're taking that focus on practice that history of science has developed and now turning it on what have been, in some cases, some of the traditional sets of questions of intellectual history. So right will turns to republicanism and suddenly uh, it says, I can help you understand republicanism by looking at the technical practices of uh, projecting future returns of interest, right? Or uh, for me, I feel much more it's like, I want us to take seriously as intellectuals, these mid-level practitioners, professionals, to think of an actuary or a doctor or a statistician as in some interesting way intellectual, not because they produce great thought in the way that that is often been discussed, but because they are crucial to the development, dissemination, and use of these practices that make it possible to both see the world in a certain way and also to be constantly constructing that world in terms of uh, the distribution of wealth, the, the means by which justice is understood, or how it is allocated. Uh, and so eventually, and even in my book, how it is that people come to understand and shape their bodies. And so in that sense, like, it starts to get towards that everyday epistemology that I see Jamie putting at the, the center of her work. I, I can't t tell you all how, uh, how much uh, I, uh, everything you just said makes me excited to go write more history and think, think about history more. Um, I'm sure we could probably keep talking for another hour. Uh, but unfortunately, I think we're going to have uh, to wrap it up. So I just want to say thank you, um, everyone, again for, for this. This was just so much fun and really enlightening in so many different ways. Uh, and uh, we really appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast today. Thanks, John. Thank you. All right. I'll, hopefully, we'll continue this conversation in other ways. Um, but uh, thank you again. Thanks, everyone. Yep. You guys, too. <laughs>